everybody. This is Brian, host of The Subtext, brought to you by American Theatre Magazine, a program of Theatre Communications Group. Welcome to this very special and exciting episode. Very special and very exciting to me because something I witnessed on Twitter a while back. I know, Twitter. I roll. But something somebody put out on Twitter that was relevant to the theater world uh, was a question about what's the worst Broadway production you ever saw or list your top three worst Broadway musicals of all time and I saw that and felt really sad it just bummed me out that and it was a popular thread like people responded all day long with play after play musical after musical that that they argued was worse than the one before it and uh, I just didn't want to live in that space. And I know I'm asking for it just by logging on to Twitter. But anyway, I went to the subtext Twitter account. And if you're on the Twitters, you can you can find the subtext at subtext podcast. So I went to the subtext Twitter account and I put out a question that said, what is that play that you saw or read in your life? that has really, really just stuck with you, that is unshakable. And I got a ton of responses to that thread, and it made me feel good that people were living in this sort of like space of positivity. So what I did was look at all of the responses, and I reached out to a bunch of people and asked them if um, I could talk to them or if they could record their thoughts about that play that they talked about. And so this is what we have. Um, I, I think we have about 15 to 20 people. They are, there are playwrights, there are dramaturgs, uh, critics, directors, you know, theater people of all stripes are, uh, responding in this episode with the play, essentially, as I like to call it, the play that fills them up. So it's a long episode, so I want to get right to it. The very first person who is speaking, her name is Danny Oliver, and I put Danny first because Danny is a very, very, very special person to this podcast. Without Danny, the subtext literally would not exist. Back when I was in Los Angeles in 2015, uh, Danny was working for LA Stage Alliance, and she asked me to contribute to this new online platform she was creating. I said yes, and Together, we decided to make the podcast, and together, we decided to call it the subtext, and we collaborated on the on the format, and everything has stuck ever since then. When I moved to Chicago and uh, the podcast became under the auspices of American Theatre Magazine, it essentially stayed the same, and that is all thanks to Danny. Her voice has never been heard on the pod before, so uh, I was excited that she was interested to talk about a play that you'll hear I loved um, just as much as she did. So, strap in. It's about an hour and a half of an incredible amount of positivity. You're going to find so many plays you're going to want to read and see after listening to this. I guarantee it. I'm Danny Oliver. 
I'm a poet and arts administrator, um, and I'm actually co-founder of the subtext originally. One of the best plays I've ever seen was Guards of the Taj at, I think it was at the Geffen in Los Angeles by Rajiv Joseph. Fun story about discovering the play. Um, I think I was about to have lunch with you, dinner, I'm not sure, but like I met up with Brian, hello. I think you maybe had seen a matinee or something of this show and you were just like frazzled. And I was like, what the hell, what, what's going on? And you're like, I just saw this play, it was at the Geffen. I can't stop thinking about it. And I was like, what's the play? And you were like, oh, it's Guards of the Taj. And you went on to explain the entire plot of the play, not knowing that I had tickets to see the same play that like next day. So you kind of like ruined it for me. And then I was like, oh, that sounds amazing. I'm gonna see it tomorrow. And you were like, what the hell? <laughs> like, why didn't you stop me? And I wouldn't have said that. And I was like, oh no, it's okay. And like, I saw the play and it did not matter that you told me the plot, it still blew me on my butt. Well, it's a two-man show, um, which I love. Like, I, I honestly, that's probably my favorite sort of format, two-person. It is a play that completely upends itself at some point, and I would almost maybe describe it as hyper-realistic. Like when you see like a, a hyper-realistic painting, right? You're like, it's it's so accurate that you get frustrated and you're like, that's not what it actually looks like, right? It heightens the reality. Um, that's kind of what that play was to me. I don't know if that's a fair assessment, but I remember in that moment being like, oh my God, I can't believe I saw this much heightened realism on this stage. The other, I mean, there is one element that stuck with me in terms of the actual plot or maybe the direction which is just this very simple moment in the play of the character spinning around, not even in slow motion, but slowly, right? Like it, it doesn't slow time down, but they do spin in sort of slow motion. And the entire play upends and the front becomes the back. The audience has a different view, but not really. And it's this utterly like simplistic, like kindergarten play like device of just spinning and the entire room and the skies change. But in this play, it's the impact was just incredible. And part of that was the acting, right? Like these two characters have these like amazing reaction to when they're spinning around what's actually being shown just on their faces was just stunning, right? It's one of the best pieces of acting I've ever seen, but it's real. I don't know. It's, we see all these, we see all these devices in theater, right? Where like, it's a soliloquy and like things are happening behind them and it's this like magical moment and we're supposed to think like, oh, A is B all the time. Like that's what theater is. It's saying like, here's A, but it's really B. Everyone knows that. This moment was so effective. It's like, there wasn't even a question of A to B, it just was B. And again, that's kind of that heightened reality that I loved so much. And you also wonder if they're ever gonna see it, right? Like there's this, they're you know, sitting there with their backs to the Taj Mahal and the audience, sees them or at least one of them for a while really want to turn around and look at it but this is forbidden and then you don't you don't know if you're ever going to see the other side like i think as a smart you know theater goer you know because that's where it's going but when you're in the play you don't know that right so they spin and you see their faces and they created the taj mahal with their faces you know nothing about the set background changed but like you saw the taj mahal when you looked into their faces and it was, you felt, this is so stupid, I feel like I'm explaining what plays do, but you felt exactly what they were seeing, which was incredible. The writing was 
really interesting to me in the dialogue between the two characters because it sort of gave off a waiting for Godot vibe in a strange way. Like it feels like it was taking from plays like that, but completely different, right? Um, sort of this person sort of needling the other person to get what they want, but what do they really want? Um, the play is obviously a lot about power and class and control in a lot of ways. And the author, the playwright created this incredible experience of like having this image of power and control behind you, right? In the script, like, I don't know, it's that it, the Taj Mahal is this thing that is just sort of looming there at all times and it's not there. There's just an incredible mastery of like creating a thing that represents the control and the, you know, class warfare, whatever, that's not the right word, but there's there's a thing in the script that's there that isn't. It's God, it's control, it's whatever, and it's it looms over the entire play. Because the other thing that play does really well is toes the line of like humor and tragedy extraordinarily well. And now we're living in this period of time where like if you don't find something to laugh at, you're screwed, forgive me for the language, but I would love to see it today. I would love, love, love to see a revival of it somewhere because I think it would be even more powerful. Hello, uh, my name is Sarah Cho, uh, and I'm a playwright and comedy writer from Los Angeles, California. Um, my favorite play, and all my friends are going to eye roll and side eye if they heard me, uh, is Barry Child. I have been talking about Barry Child for many years, uh, it's the one play I always bring up. Um, I was 19 years old when I first saw my professional uh, theater production, and it was Barry Child. In college, my contemporary theater class was studying the works of Sam Shepard, and it was a required assignment to see this live production. Now, I didn't think much about the play when I first read it for class, but when I saw it for the first time on stage in a small town, Santa Barbara, I, I couldn't believe what I was experiencing or what I was witnessing, but it just grabbed me. Um, the scene where Tilden, he brings in the corn and it's clearly mentally unwell and he just sits there shucking corn. Like that scene will always stick with me for the rest of my life. You know, that play spoke to me about family in a way that I didn't see in movies or television at that point in my life. Um, and it was about family and shame and secrets, you know. I grew up in a very broken family and this play just resonated with me in so many ways. You know, I couldn't believe this straight white man from a whole different time period, uh, much older than me, uh, and a play that didn't take place in LA, but in the Midwest understood my pain as a Korean American growing up in a very broken traditional Korean family. Um, that dealt with the shame and secrets that nobody wanted to talk about. And so Very Child would just shape the way I write for many years as I tackle topics in family and uh, the relationship and the dynamics between mothers and daughters. 
Um, you know, it's been about 12 to 13 years since I last saw the play live, um, but it's been about maybe two to three years since I read the play and it still resonates. I think it still resonates because even when the world is changing, this disillusionment this, this in the relationship and families and its dynamics will always stay the same. And I think people who have live in family or have a family or understand what families have to go through um i think they will understand this play um, and i think that's why this play really uh spoke to me My name is Lily Janik, and I'm the theater critic at the San Francisco Chronicle. And the play that I can't shake is Gloria by Brandon Jacobs Jenkins, which was directed by Eric Ting at ACT in 2020. And part of what I can't shake is the performance of Lauren English as this very privileged editor and the way she wore her privilege was just like this total shock that her world could be shaken and kind of the defenselessness um, she had in the face of any disruption as if she'd never had to figure out how to deal with anything that could like disturb her before. The other performance I'm really still enamored of is Melanie Ari Ma as this like incisively mean office worker who just stabs her spear in where it hurts with everyone around her and digs it around and twists it around but then she kind of showed how this character had to be that way and how there was no other option. And I also just think about how the play showed how an office can get so toxic. Like just the rage spiral of cynicism and nihilism where everyone hates their job and everyone feels powerless and nobody's getting fulfilled or quote unquote getting ahead and if I were a better Marxist I could talk more about what that means but maybe the thing that sticks with me most is you think you know all the ways that privilege can manifest or at least a lot of the ways but there's just this oh of course me ness that some people have and sorry I don't have a better word for that but just like this assumption that oh of course it would be me who gets this thing that's just like kind of breathtaking and unassailable and and that can manifest in even like who we care about who we tilt our heads toward in a room. Oh. Yeah.
I'm Daniel Olivas, and I'm a playwright, fiction writer, poet, and book critic, and um, I'm also a, an attorney. Uh, today we're going to talk about Zoot Suit, written by Luis Valdez. In the summer of 1978, I had finished my freshman year at Stanford, and I was back home, and the play Zoot Suit by Luis Valdez had already been a huge hit in Los Angeles, primarily with um, the Chicano community. Uh, my parents had seen it that spring. Um, the shows had sold out. So what they did was they purchased a bunch of tickets for the family so that when I came back home for the summer, I was able to, to watch the play. It was really a life-changing experience for me. As a 19-year-old in 1978, someone who grew up in a primarily Mexican-American community, uh, most of my media, TV and movies and plays had had pretty much been dominated by, um, you know, white um, literature, white characters, white actors, white playwrights. And so when I saw this play uh, that represented people who looked like my family, looked like me, with audience members that looked very much like uh, like my family, it it really sunk in that this was something special, something different. In 1978, uh, after seeing the play and then going back up to college after summer break, I had seen something that really shifted my view of, of what plays could be. So Zoot Suit is based on the Sleep Lagoon murder trial of 1942. Um, it was a time in Los Angeles where um, young Mexican-Americans who dressed um, in the Pachuco style wearing the Zoot Suit uh, basically were harassed and beaten and at times actually killed by um, police and what had happened was there was a murder and 22 young Mexican-Americans were put on trial and the trial basically was was a it was a kangaroo court uh, racist um, comments were made by the judge and by the prosecution and um, what Luis Valdez did and Luis Valdez of course um, was the founder of um, Teatro Campesino in, in the mid-60s, and Zoot Suit was his um, breaking from the more naturalistic um, farm worker type of um, um, plays. Um, Zoot Suit essentially uh, is a dreamscape. It is mixed with transcripts and with um, uh, made-up dialogue, um, but there is this amazing character, the, the the Pachuco, played by Eric James Olmos in the original production. And this character is a, is a combination Greek chorus and inner, the inner dialogue of one of the main characters, Henry Reyna, who is uh, one of the people put up um, uh, for trial for murder. And that character essentially is the MC for the entire play. And sometimes that character interrupts the play to let the audience know what's going on, or sometimes is cajoling Henry Reyna, or sometimes even insulting Henry. And there is a an, really an epic moment in the play when the Pachuco is actually beaten up and stripped of his zoot suit. And all that is left is the Pachuco wearing a loincloth and Aztec music begins to play. And the Pachuco stands after being beaten and proudly 
faces the audience, and then walks off to the music of his ancestors. Uh, so this play really is um, a play that uh, reached deep into the psyche and into the culture of Mexican Americans, but also by doing that, um, brought it to more contemporary times in the 1940s. Because frankly, in 1978, you know, similar things were already going on and similar things are going on today. We, we saw it with the election of Trump. So the type of hatred and, and the othering of Mexican-Americans and, and uh, people um, of Latin American um, uh, uh, heritage um, has been part of this country from pretty much from the, from the beginning. This play spoke to me on so many levels, and in some ways, I think its ability to um, not only combine the language of my people, English mixed with Spanish, the kind of language I heard growing up, but also brought in wonderful elements of dream imagery and, and the internal debates that we, as um, people of color go through quite often. Uh, we have these voices in our heads, which are replicated in the play, where you're told you're wonderful, you're great. And then another voice that just follows up by saying, you're not worth it anymore. Why are you fighting? You've already lost this battle. The game is fixed. And so the fact that Luis Valdez was able to bring all those elements into this remarkable play just just stuck with me. Uh, he spoke to me in that way. In 2017, uh, I was able to see the 50th anniversary um, production of Zoot Suit, uh, the Mark Taper form, um, rotted back, and my wife and I went, and I found that it was even more powerful um, at that time, even more powerful than when I first saw it. Luis Valdez, one of the foundation foundational texts for me becoming a playwright. Um, but I, I think in some ways, uh, even though my, my play is very different and it's, it's modeled on Waiting for Gado, um, it's, it deals with the anti-immigrant um, 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 policies of our country. Um, I, I think I, I decided at that time, and you know, I think this was part of what I was doing, was to use theater to express things I really couldn't do when I wrote a short story or wrote a poem, um, to allow um, my words to inhabit people, actors, in order to get certain points across. And the primary point, of course, is the absurdity of um, anti-immigrant policies, and in particular, the anti-immigrant policies um, under the Trump administration. My name is Jer Adrian Lelliot, and I am the founder and former artistic director of Courage Ensemble. The play that really drew me in in an unshakable way was A Kind of Weather by Sylvan Oswald. It's a beautiful, wonderful, truthful play, a very simple father-son story 
in which the protagonist happens to be a trans man. And it's, it's so straightforward. Uh, it's so lacking in, in bullshit. Um, there's not, there's not any fat on it. There's no decoration. It's all just, it feels, oh gosh, I want to say cinematic, but it almost, it feels bigger. It feels like, um, it's a theatrical piece that, that feels like it could be like a, a like an open game, <laughs> open world game. I think that's what they're called. I'm not a gamer. The reason it's stuck with me is because there's, there's a passage, a monologue, uh, and you know, it's part of the narrative, uh, as any monologue should be, but it also, you can pull the text out of the play and it works just as a straight paragraph about the trans narrative and how it's nobody's place um, to uh, correct a person's self-identified spot or spots on the gender spectrum. Uh, and it just, it, it, it tells it so unapologetically, but also kind of undeniably. It's just, I really appreciate the simplicity of it. I, I wanted to use it as a monologue and um, I couldn't because it just, it felt like I was just saying something <laughs> about being trans. Um, but you know, it's uh, it's got a, a father-son story that really appeals to me personally. Uh, it's also got a really refreshing uh, queer love story. Um, that's, that's, I guess that's the, the thing that stuck with me the most is the play, uh, it, it, by being just a, a truthful kind of experiential play, it, it busts all the myths uh, that we're used to in, in portrayals of, of trans men. And then in, in, in a truthful portrayal of a trans man, it's such a refreshing portrayal just of a man. Because um, trans men are the best. <laughs> Not sorry. Um, oh, and I should say, I, I discovered this play because it was developed uh, through a program at Center Theatre Group. Uh, and I was asked to read stage directions uh, for a reading. And I, I love reading stage directions, um, but these, these stage directions were poetry because uh, Sylvan is a, a poet in addition to being a playwright. Um, and I'm, I'm so grateful for the opportunity to work with uh, that lovely director and cast. Um, I feel like we imagined the play in front of, you know, most of LA's producing leaders. Um, and it's still shocking to me that nobody has produced that play yet because it is very, very deserving. Um, and I would say there's an urgent need to present uh, material like Sylvan's. My name is Carrie Bentley Quinn, and I'm a playwright and screenwriter. The play we're talking about is Scarcity by Lucy Thurber. I saw a production of it when they were doing all of her plays, the Hilltown plays, um, back in, I think, 2013. Um, and I was in grad school at the time, so I didn't have time to go see all five of them. So I chose two um, based on what my friends told me. So I went to Scarcity and I went to um, Killers and Other Family, both of which were excellent. But Scarcity, I, so I saw it, it was at Cherry Lane um, with Dee Dee O'Connell uh, in it. And I, I'll see anything she's in anyway. So I was like, oh, Dee Dee's in it. I have to go see that. Um, and that was how, that was when I saw that production. Play, it's, I mean, at its core, it's a family play. Um, 
but it's about a very uh, violent alcoholic family with two children, an older brother and a younger sister. Um, and I grew up in a house with alcoholic parents and I'm the oldest. So um, yeah, so it's just about this family and this kid, the older, the older son is uh, very gifted and there's a teacher trying to help him get into, a, you know, a good school, basically a way out, a way for him to get out of this environment. Um, and it's really about his, his internal struggle in potentially leaving his sister behind and what that means for his family. There are so many things about the play that stuck with me. I think the thing that stuck with me the most besides how much I related to it just from my own personal experience, my family was never that poor. Um, we were never, it was a different kind of scarcity mentality and that you know, my mom led us to believe that we were a lot poorer than we were. So we were always nervous. My dad got laid off a lot. So I, I kind of, I kind of related to that, but I think the thing that stuck with me most is that the play is relentless. It does not look away from the violence in that family or the, the how they're so inappropriate. Um, there's a scene, I, I just won't ever forget it, where the parents are loudly having sex in the next room while their children are there. And I mean, it's just awful. And it doesn't, I don't know about, you know, different productions, but in this particular one, I mean, it went on what felt like forever. And you just have to sit with that awfulness. And there's so many moments in the play like that. Like at the end of the play, my husband looked at me and was like, we have to go get a drink. I was like, I know I was totally shaken. Um, but that's what makes it so exciting. And that's what makes it so theatrical and why it belongs on a stage versus being a movie or a TV show. I still think it's very one of a kind. I think it's very underrated, even though everybody I know loves this play, but I know it got some mixed reviews. Um, I think it's an important play and I think it's one that should be done. Um, and the more I think about it, the more I just really want to see another production of it because I want to see what different actors would bring to it. And I, I it's and I want to be able to remember, it. you know, this was almost eight, God, almost eight years ago, you know, so I'm trying to remember everything about the play. Um, and I would love to see it again through new, older, fresh eyes and see, you know, what I take away from it this time. A fascination of mine in my own work is class. Um, and I really think that this play makes me realize there should be more plays about working class people. Um, and they don't all have to be about, you know, alcoholics and addicts. They don't all, but it happens to be kind of a part of what we're dealing with in America right now. And I think that this is still true and that there's so much despair and so much hopelessness, especially when there's economic precarity. Um, and when people aren't sure how they're going to feed their children and how they're going to pay their bills, um, that these are the kinds of behaviors and things that people turn to. And it's cyclical in families. And I think that more, more attention to that and the cycle of abuse in the country, I think is something that we all need to be exploring. And I think this was one of the, the big ones out of the gate. And I think it's been continuing. I think that more stories like that are coming out, but there still needs to be more conversation about it. I'm Robert Firpo Cappiello. I'm a playwright, composer, and actor. 448 Psychosis by Sarah Kane is the play that has always stuck with me. 
I first discovered it um, in a New York Times review. I believe it was being performed in Brooklyn, and the review made it sound like nothing I had ever seen before. I read 448 Psychosis, and that was confirmed. At some level, you can make the case that 448 Psychosis has no characters, has no setting, and has no plot. I don't mean that derisively, I mean it with the greatest respect. It was an incredible inspiration to me because I was writing a piece, a solo piece at the time, uh, about a fractured personality who sort of played many characters, sometimes unclear. And 448 Psychosis and Sarah Kane's writing gave me permission personally to keep pushing, um, uh, pushing the boundaries of what theater can do. Uh, there are parts of 448 Psychosis that feel like dialogue between distinct personalities, but we can't quite call them characters. There are moments that feel like poetry, just flat out gorgeous uh, and disturbing writing. There are times where numbers are being repeated and chanted. There are times when medications are being listed. It's uh, an extraordinary collage of words that can be performed as a solo piece, can be performed um, with a, with three or four uh, actors. And I come back to it constantly for inspiration. Uh, Sarah Kane, of course, had a short career as a playwright and um, an incredible influence. And 448 was her last piece. And um, at least for me, the most influential. Hi, I'm Kristen Edashak. I'm a playwright, dramaturg, and a hobbyist rock climber. Today, I want to talk about Far Away by Carol Churchill, uh, which I first read when I was uh, in college. I was assigned to read the play for a class, and I, I, I have no idea what class it was. Uh, and I want to be totally transparent and say that I don't know that I totally even fully understood the play the first time I read it, but it's one of those plays that just really got under my skin and that, you know, really, I, I really haven't stopped thinking about since. You know, I think, I was thinking a lot about the metaphor of uh, peeling away layers of an onion because I think Churchill uh, delivers information in, in all of her plays, and, and in this play in particular, sort of uh, the experience of encountering this text is like slicing through an onion. But I don't mean that in the sort of anodyne way, in the sort of cliche way that we usually think about it. It's a play, it's like, it's like you're slicing through the onion, and as you sort of, as more is revealed, you start involuntarily weeping, and it's not necessarily because you're having an emotional experience, it's because the experience is so visceral and and like the acid, the onion acid is getting into your eyes, but you're also still holding the knife. And so you're just, you're, you're like just hoping that you don't slice your thumb off. And so that really was, was like the, is my memory of reading this play for the first time. And, and actually I've never seen it produced uh, and I, I desperately, desperately want to in our sort of one, in our post-pandemic theater life. I, I, I hope, I truly hope to see a production of this play sometime soon because it is actually, I think, 
it was so prescient when it was written in 2000, and I think in some ways it feels even more relevant, if possible, now. Far Away is one of those plays that kind of defies description. Structurally, it's a triptych, and it moves linearly through time. And it follows this, this girl named Joan, and, and it follows her. We meet her first when she's a little girl, and then uh, and then we, we sort of follow her through into adulthood. Uh, and, and as a young girl, when we first meet her, she is staying with her aunt and uncle, and she witnesses this sort of disturbing event where her uncle is essentially um, uh, massacring uh, people, including children, in her shed. And I, I say, I'm saying this in a really sort of blunt way, but but it, it's revealed sort of slowly as her aunt is 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 you know questioning this little girl late at night. Uh, and then uh, in, in part two of the triptych, we move forward in time and uh, and Joan is working at a, she's a hat maker. Um, but she's, this is not like your run of the mill haberdashery. She is, uh, she's making these really elaborate, hyperbolically elaborate hats and you know, she she describes the thesis hat that she made for her, in, in college before she came to work at this hat factory um, as, a, as like a six foot tall giraffe hat. And so, uh, so we, but and and as we spend time with her in the factory, what we realize is that the hat these hats are made for uh, for. For political prisoners who are being executed, and there's this parade, sort of uh, in, in sort of towards the end of the second part of the triptych. There's this parade of dozens of these prisoners wearing the hat on their way to be executed, uh, and that realization is is really is just like like blood curdling it's so chilling and then in in part three it the, there's sort of this the the world sort of opens up again or expands or, or sort of um continues to evolve and what we discover is that this conflict that's really that sort of started when joan was a girl has now expanded to literally include the whole world. The animals have chosen sides. Nature itself has chosen a side. Uh, at one point, Joan talks about, oh, but, well, the weather has sided against us. So I, I wasn't sure. She, she, she goes home in this final part of the play to, to revisit her aunt and to sort of seek refuge at her aunt's home once again. Uh, and and so it's really about the sort of um, the logical extreme of this essentially sort of capitalist genocide that has that has uh, that has essentially destroyed or is in the process of, of uh, 
of, of annihilating everything in existence. And so, you know, I think, you know, you can describe the play in so many ways. I think you can read it as an ecological play. You can read it as a, as a, as a capitalist critique, as a, as a, um, as a play that looks at sort of the, um, just the the sort of the death cult of capitalism and colonialism and imperialism uh and in a certain way you can look at it as a sort of coming of age story of joan as she um sort of moves through time from being a little girl to being sort of this the complicit in this machinery of of um death and and genocide and war, and then she sort of becomes a, a, sort of like a warrior at the end, or sort of a, a, a guerrilla fighter at the end of the play. There's a philosopher, uh, an ancient Greek philosopher named Heraclitus, who says that you can't cross the same river twice. And he says that that's because you've changed and because the river's changed. Uh, and, and so if you, if you cross it a second time, you are a different person and the river is a different river. And to me, that's really how this play, how I think all, you know, great plays exist, how all great plays function, that when you revisit them, depending on where you are in your life, the world has changed, you have changed. And so even though the words on the page have stayed the same, the play itself has changed. And that's really how I feel about Far Away. And and when I was rereading it most recently, I was really struck by the fact that the, the play ends with um, an ecological metaphor that speaks to that in a, in a sort of um, very direct way. Joan is, is describing her journey back home to her, her aunt and uncle's home. And, uh, and she says, uh, but I didn't know whose side the river was on. It might help me swim or it might drown me. In the middle, the current was running much faster. The water was brown. I didn't know if that meant anything. I stood on a bank on the bank a long time, but I knew it was my only way of getting here. So at last I put one foot in the river. It was very cold, but so far that was all. When you've just stepped in, you can't tell what's going to happen. The water laps around your ankles in any case. And that's the very last line of the play. And so uh, I think that, and that to me really, really encapsulates the experience of, of being with this play over, you know, a decade or so now. Charlie Yvonne Simpson, and I'm a playwright. Um, a play that I've encountered that I just haven't been able to shake um, is Bright Half-Life by Tanya Barfield. I saw a production of this play, I guess back in 2015 now, um, in New York City. Um, and to be honest, I don't even really know why I went. I think I you know, uh, got an email. I just moved to the, back to the city and, um, was just sort of beginning to do things in the theater scene. Um, and I 
heard about this play and I, I went to go see it and um, knowing nothing about the play or about Tonya Barfield's work. Um, and I just remember sitting in the audience probably with my mouth open the entire time. I hadn't seen a play like it before. I hadn't experienced going through these memories and this relationship uh, as fast and as quick and um, as the play uh, asked for. Um, And I just remember just being so in awe, so in awe that uh, these actors and, and the writer and the whole, you know, the whole uh, cast and crew uh, had worked together to make it all happen so seamlessly so that I understood what was happening even as we were popcorning from memory to memory, moment to moment. Um, and it was so exhilarating. And it was about the time that um, I was beginning to think about grad school and thinking about really. Um, really truly committing to being a playwright and it was just like a a breath of fresh air excited air Um, and yeah like it just sticks with me even now Um, now I I, I teach and um, for a number of my classes I have taught this play um, and it's been sort of lovely and beautiful to return to as a teacher and um, as someone who hopes to, you know, provide opportunities for newer writers uh, to find the voices that feel like a breath of fresh air to them. Um, so it, it's, it's always a, a, a lovely return um, when I teach that play and when I get to uh, share how, um, how much it affected me in my writing and what, um, I realized was possible on the stage. My name is Ray Yamanochi. I'm a playwright. I saw Caught in 2016, I believe, at uh, La Mama by the Play Company, and it was written by Chris Chen. I discovered this play through the uh, play company newsletter. Uh, they had just announced their extension and I had no, no idea what the play was about. I didn't know what play company was at the time. I just saw that it had Asian actors and it was written by an Asian American. So I just sort of bought it on a whim and uh, it was it was incredible. The play is about this Chinese artist and it's hard to talk about it without ruining it. So for those of you who can get a hands on the play, I'll try and sort of talk around it. But essentially it's this play about this Chinese artist who isn't really Chinese and the work that they have presented may or may not be how they advertised it. And the play itself sort of really challenges the audience to rethink or at least just um, look at critically the idea around authenticity and it does this in very incredibly meta theatrical levels where you as the audience members are constantly challenging what is true on stage or not 
um, throughout the play, and even that the play is over. I didn't even know if it was over at the end. And the thing that stood out to me the most was the final act of it. It was about these two characters, uh, and they're talking about their artist friend, their mutual artist friend who had recently passed. And over time, they begin to realize that they had both dated this artist at the same time without either of them knowing. However, they have totally different opinions about what that artist was actually doing, like what the intention behind this artist's art was. And they have this huge argument about essentially the truth behind this artist's intention. And just because they have completely differing opinions, is someone wrong? Is anyone wrong? Is anyone actually even right? And what is authentic about this per person's art? It was really, really a fascinating interrogation. And that scene sticks with me the most because it deals with this, you know, you think you know this person so intimately and you think you know the ins and outs of this person and their art and maybe you actually don't. And does it really matter? if that's how you felt about it, knowing this person. I don't know. Questions about authenticity truly never go away, especially now when the voices of different types of cultures and people and identities is so important. You know, we do, as a culture, maybe American culture, have an obsession with quote-unquote authenticity. And, you know, I was listening to this interview with uh, Stephen Young recently. He was quoting Boots Riley, when apparently Boots told him that and you know i'm paraphrasing here i can't get the quote exactly but something like um the essentializing nature of authenticity sometimes negates the individual truth and i think that was really fascinating because you know this idea this obsession we have about things being authentic and we just need to have the person with the proper identity to like tell this quote-unquote authentic story may sometimes actually take away, like it, it essentializes your true experience and your true identity in this way that may seem authentic, but may not be true, if that makes any sense. Um, and I thought that was just an incredibly fascinating viewpoint. And, you know, it, it's these things about authenticity and, and you know, it's conversations like this about like conversations that the play is trying to do, uh, the conversations that the play is trying to have about authenticity that I think is kind of a, a perennial question. I'm Anne Morgan. I'm a dramaturg, a literary manager, and a new play advocate. The play that I've encountered that has uh, really stuck with me is Viet Gone by Kui Gwen. I first saw the play uh, as a staged reading as part of the Pacific Playwrights Festival at South Coast Repertory Theater, and I wish I could remember what year it was. I want to say like 2016, 2015 or 2016. And I remember it was, it was, you know, it's one of those festivals. It's a weekend that's just like chock-a-block full of things. And it was towards the last, it was either the last reading or towards the end of the festival. 
And I see a lot of staged readings for in my line of work. I just for over a decade now, I've been seeing a ton of staged readings and I had never before and still to this day have not anywhere else experienced a staged reading that made an audience laugh that hard and cry that hard within the same th theatrical experience. And I was right there along with the rest of the audience laughing and crying. And it was the most incredible reminder of just how thrilling good writing can be. Um, that that play, I think, is remarkable and extraordinary. And even with no sets and no costumes, um, that just came through clear as day. And it was so thrilling to be uh, a part of that, the audience for that reading. Um, and then since then, I saw the production at Manhattan Theater Club in New York. And then a few years later, after I had moved to Virginia, I went and saw the production at Studio Theater in DC. Um, and so I really, I'm like a huge fan of this play. And pretty much any time I find myself in proximity to it, I'm gonna go see it. Viet Gone is uh, in my mind an epic and wildly theatrical story about these two people who have experienced incredible loss, finding themselves and each other in a new place. And I think that's like my really like rough draft sketch of sort of the shape of the play, but what that, what I have failed to do in that little nutshell is speak to what the play is doing theatrically and the way that we uses different um, styles of language to sort of uh, communicate the characters' language barriers and the use of rap and the use of fight sequences and this sort of like romantic comedy montage. One of the things that I think is so successful about the play um, is the way that all of these different styles and modes of storytelling are um, mashed up together in a way that I think if you pitched it to me, I would be like, I don't, I don't know about that, but it actually works so very well. And I think, yeah, I think it's just uh, extraordinary both in terms of the story he's telling and the way in which it's told. I think that the, the marriage of, of form and content is, is part of what makes the play so uh, impactful. The play as a whole and the play as a theatrical experience has stuck with me for a couple of reasons. Um, one, that just like the circumstances of where I was in my career and where that play was in its journey is I have just been a fan. I haven't had to advocate for the play and been told no by a, a, a producer. I haven't had to like reject an early draft of the play. Like there, 
I have had no sort of professional obligations of my own with the play, um, which is really pretty freeing for me. Um, there are there are many playwrights um, who I, whose work that I have responded to that I have had felt a tension between wanting to support them and then not being able to for any number of reasons. Um, and this play, I am just a fan and that feels like a huge gift to just love it with with uh, unconditionally. And it has stuck with me um, because it, that staged reading experience was a reminder of how exciting theater can be. The, this, this field that has so many problems and this form that is so ancient and um, this line of work that I'm in that can be really exhausting as I read play after play after play after play. And seeing Vietcon at Pacific Clarence Festival really just sort of like exploded all of that and remind me, reminded me why I do what I do. So that's sort of like why the play as a whole has stuck with me. Within the play, a few, a few moments in particular have stuck with me. The ending of the play, which I like, don't really want to give a, away um, in case there are folks who are listening who haven't experienced it, but there's this turn and each, each of my encounters with the play, um, but especially my first encounter, that moment when it happens and that moment when I sort of realized what that turn was, that the audience was being taken on was just incredibly moving. And I don't, I'm sort of failing to articulate just how moving it was, but the sort of emotional depth of that moment um, has really stuck with me. And then sort of on the flip side of that, the other moment that really sticks with me right towards the beginning where a character is explaining that the Vietnamese characters in the play are going to talk like this and the American characters in the play are going to talk like that and that sort of flip and the humor that that is used there and then sort of how effectively that that um, threads through the through the, the rest of the play I had never encountered a tactic like that and, and, and that has really sort of stuck with me as a way to be really effective about a like pretty serious thematic concern, but do it in a way that's really playful and inviting. In the years since I encountered it, I'm still like a huge fan. I'm desperate. I know there's a sequel and I'm desperate to see it, but it has not found its way to near me yet but I'm really looking forward to that. And I think the more space that I've gotten from the um, actual experience of being in the theater and watching it, the more I'm reflecting on like just how strong the craft of that play is um, and how, how skillful the writing is. And I've done a lot of work recently in a sort of Shakespeare adjacent Lane, and I've been thinking a lot about sort of how the epic nature and the ambition and the mixing of theatrical constructs, um, that there is something almost Shakespearean um, about this play that has made it so successful um, in my eyes. Um, so I think, yeah, I'm like, 
still super into it, would go to see it again in a heartbeat, desperate to see the sequel and just um, deeper and deeper appreciation for the writing of it. Hi, my name is Caridad Stitch, and I'm a playwright. The play that I've encountered in my life that I can't shake uh, is a play musical <laughs> called Hedwig and the Angry Inch by John Cameron Mitchell and Stephen Trask. How did I discover this play musical? <laughs> uh, February 1998, New York City. I'm looking for the Jane Street Theater. Uh, a friend tells me you got to see the show, uh, and, and of my love of uh, and many other kinds of glam rock um, and punk. Um, they said you got to see this, um, so I ran. <laughs> I ran, and I fell in love, and I was smitten with what I saw. Um, how would I describe the play? Electric, glittering, intense, naughty, dirty, uh, raucous, beautiful, devilish, mournful, and melancholy. What it is about the play just stuck with me. It's about transcendence, and it's about finding yourself and being completely lost and being uh, deeply wounded in all senses uh, and coming through that. I think that's what stays with me about this piece and why it sticks with me because I think that in in on multiple levels Mitchell and Trask figured out a way to connect to feelings of isolation and um, outsider status and not belonging and also being forced in a situation of not belonging um, for this character that, they, that John Cameron Mitchell created. Uh, that is fascinating and compelling and disturbing. I think there's a trouble and riddle in this play. And um, yeah, so I come back to it. I come back to it all the time and it kind of haunts me. I still think it's electric and devilish and weird and wonderful. I love the songs. I sing them all the time. <laughs> I think they really hold up. They're really well crafted. Um, it's a very traditional musical in a way. Uh, the songs actually do move the story forward. <laughs> um, uh, it's very deeply, deeply smart in its interrogation of um, Plato's Symposium. I feel it captures a certain time in New York City that won't ever come back. <laughs> so speaking about the original production, a kind of cusp era in New York, uh, deeply disturbing era, you know, Giuliani was mayor, it was a very repressive time, uh, you know, uh, for uh, queer folks in New York City, uh, especially from Giuliani's office, I and mean, basically, basically said he didn't care about any about it, queer people. Um, you know, so I think that the police, the peace dance uh, in defiance it, it rose out of a sense of defiance, um, and I think it's it's in your faceness. It's part of that. So I think that now the piece doesn't fit quite the same way. Maybe, maybe. Um, but I think that it still 
has an element of the transgressive. I think has to do with the fact that it refuses to answer itself. It's a, a piece that has a journey, and you know, it begins to find themselves at the end. Uh, but we don't know where that path is going to lead um, for this genderqueer person. So, uh, um, I I love the the fact that I think that Mitchell and Trust don't settle it, don't answer Hedwig's um, journey, don't give it closure, means that I think that something in the spirit of the show, even 20 years later, 20 some years later, oh my gosh, <laughs> a long time. Um, still has the ability to haunt. So I think that's how I feel about it. I mean, certainly gender politics and discussion around gender politics have changed very much since 1998 when the piece first began. But um, the the vexing heart of it, uh, I think, still beats. So that's how I feel about it. And I won't ever shake it. I won't ever shake the show because I am smitten. It captured my heart. I'm Deb Height. I'm a playwright and an actress. I was able to grab a single third row seat to Jez Butterworth's The Ferryman in its New York City incarnation in 2019. And I knew nothing about it going in except that it was written by Butterworth. And I knew I had regretted missing Jerusalem when it was up years earlier. At the time, I was exhausted from my own rehearsal, so I was worried about getting through a play that was three hours and 20 minutes long, uh, or whatever it was, but I found that experience, and I call it that because it was practically an immersive experience with the live animals and 21 cast members, including human infants, uh, the smells of cut peat and muddy harvest and and the freshly rendered goose fat and the eggs and the bacon that the characters cook and the enormous meal that the family eats on stage and at one point a lampshade catches fire I mean the entire experience of seeing this sprawling family drama play out was utterly transformative it changed me as as a person because it's a beautiful heart-wrenching work but also it changed me as a writer and an actor I started thinking more expansively about playwriting. I realized I'd gotten into this poverty mindset, a tiny, tiny cast, tiny set, so so that I could get something produced somewhere. And that's not dumb, given where I am and the state of theater budgets these days, but sometimes you need to witness how rich and expansive and deliciously multi-dimensional great storytelling can be. And I will never forget how three hours passed in one emotional, sensory overloaded, awe-inspiring blink. My name is Inda Craig Galvan, and I'm a playwright. A play that I encountered that stuck with me, made a huge impact on how I think about theater and my own writing is The Nether by Jennifer Haley. I moved here, I think 
just before that play was produced at CTG to Los Angeles from Chicago, but I didn't get to see it. And right after that, I was acting in a play with a young actress named Brigitte Fleming, who mentioned, oh yeah, I just did this play at CTG called The Nether. And I was like, oh my gosh, you're such an amazing young actor. You're so talented. Um, I want to read it. And I read it and could see her in this role of the, the girl. And it was amazing. Not just because I could see Brigitte in it, but her innocence and her real life qualities just imagining that in the world of this play. To describe the play, it is sort of an exploration on in a, the anonymity of the internet, of online worlds, it, the lengths that you can go to. And I, I don't want to spoil anything about the play, but it's about a, a sort of another digital world that is created for people to act out their basest fantasies and it's dark and it's scary and those fantasies are revolting and hard to imagine that that's what someone wants. But in this other world that's not real, in this digital virtual world, they can do it safely and that's sort of their argument. We would be acting out on this in the real world on these sweet innocent things and if we didn't have this space and someone tries to shut it down because it's all perversion and it's you shouldn't be allowed to act out this sort of fantasy um, is this person's perspective. It's dark. It is sort of a, a look into like the very near future, uh, but a future that's not very different from ours. And this was what, in 2013? It's probably now. It's probably now. It's probably right here, right now happening. The, the science and the technology of it. It surprised me that I could see both sides, and I loved that. Not surprised me, but I appreciate it that I could see both sides. And it maybe surprised me a little bit because I was like, oh wait, I understand these psychotic child abusers. I, I, the play is written in a way that you understand both sides. Nobody is a villain, even when they're doing villainous things because you understand and you see them as humans and you see, you understand their, what's driving them to do the things they're doing. And that really inspired me to make bad guys human in my own writing and to just look at, at, at characters through a kinder lens and a more open lens that you're creating people on a stage in your plays, you're creating people but hopefully they are as well-rounded and diverse as humans are in, in 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 the real world so that you cannot label one bad or one good and and how I feel about the play now it's so scary the things that have happened for us in our real world with the internet trolls and the the entire worlds that are created when you look at something like QAnon like they have their own version of reality and then it spills out into the world and then you get people storming the capital and then you get other people working in the capital supporting those people and letting them in so it, it seemed 
in reading the play years ago, like, oh, this is far away. This is a dystopian future. This is not the future. This is the present. And Jennifer captured, I think she really had her finger on the pulse of that and really captured where we're going and how do you restrict the use of, of the virtual platform and how do you tell someone what's what's real and what's wrong and what's true and, and 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 how do you not get lost in it yourself when you realize that maybe you're being peddled a lot of um, lies as well. Uh, powerful play, I love it. And also when I finally met Jennifer Haley, the playwright, was struck by how normal and sweet and happy and and I, I think that also freed me up. I was expecting a, a dark, scary soul. Maybe she she does have one, but she hides it behind a wonderful smile and a wonderful personality and a kind heart. And it really also freed me up to explore darker things and continue to have a very boring, not that her life's boring, my life is hella boring, to have a boring, ordinary life and to explore these deep, dark, scary places in my writing. My name is Vicki Meager. I'm a playwright. A play that made a deep impression on me is The Wolves by Sarah DeLout. It premiered in 2016 in New York City. I saw it later in Boston. I like to know as little as possible about a play when I see it. All I knew when I sat down to see it was that it was about a girls' soccer team, and there was tremendous buzz about it. The set is an indoor soccer facility. So the play has tremendous visual appeal when you sit down. I was with these girls before they even showed up. I read the playbill. Whoa, the names of the players are their numbers, like number 25 and number 7 and number 00. This is going to be a different play. I just loved it from the beginning. I was captivated. The sounds, the energy, the differentness. At one point, the girls are all running around the theater doing their warm-ups, and they're just running in a line around the stage, having fun being teenage girls. I could feel my body relax into the play. My midsection just took a pause from life, and I wanted to sit there with that feeling all night. When I see a play, I need to be engaged with the fate of at least one character to enjoy it. I don't have to like the character, not at all, but I need to care about the character. And later, I thought about this play. Whose character's fate did I care about? The answer was all of them. All nine of them. And the tenth character when she entered at the end. The world is a stupendous play. Thanks. David Valdez. I'm a playwright and novelist living outside of Boston. In 2019, I encountered the play Wolf Play by Hansel Jong. It was being performed at the Boston Public Library by Company One Theatre in Boston. I didn't know anything about the play. I knew only that it was Company One and I trust their work and that it featured several Boston actresses who I really appreciated and a cast largely of people of color, including being led by two women of color. I got to the show really, truly not knowing what to expect, except that 
uh, I had read that there was a queer couple in the play and that it used puppetry. The play is um, a tricky story to tell. It is about um, an Asian American uh, child, an adoptee, who is portrayed by a puppet. And it's really almost impossible to describe the plot without saying too much, except that the story follows different people who lay claim to this child and different people who could or should be uh, a family for this child at different points. The show involves not just the puppetry that I mentioned, uh, but boxing. It just becomes the most fascinating show because there are moments of humor and comedy, but there are moments of really true naked pain. Uh, the interplay of the live actors and the puppet becomes weirdly uh, organic and heartbreaking all at once. And the further the play goes, the more you are looking at what trauma means and what it looks like and how it feels. And it's really a devastating play, really, truly. Um, I found myself thinking a lot about the way that people's prejudices, people's fears, uh, people's own limits and burdens then get ported onto other people and the way that our wounds echo outward and ripple outward. When I left the theater that day, I was shaking. Uh, I was in tears and really almost having trouble breathing uh, by the end of the play, and that is very rare for me. Uh, I have to say, I, <laughs> I dislike more plays that I see probably than I like, and the fact that I was so moved and surprised and upended by this was really a shock to me. And so coming out on the other side, so struck by it, um, it really did affect me, and I told a lot of people about the play afterwards. Uh, it's been a year and a half, almost two years, since I've seen that play now, and it still remains one of the most theatrical experiences I've ever had. It stays with me as a play that is powerful and haunting and fresh and unlike anything else that I have seen. And as a playwright, it makes me want to write. My name is Alex Sobler, and I'm a playwright, a theater artist, sometimes I say. So the play that uh, really stuck with me was Mary Jane by Amy Herzog, which I saw a production of at New York Theater Workshop. When I saw the play, I was either finishing up grad school or just out of grad school for playwriting, where I got my MFA. So I was very much in process as a playwright. And I also uh, am a married, luckily, lucky married person, very happily married, um, in a great relationship. But we had also sort of finalized the decision to not have children, <laughs> which was not an easy decision for me or us. 
And, uh, and I think that that affected my experience of the play. Uh, Mary Jane is a play, a, a, uh, I would say it's a, a comedic drama, very funny moments in it, but extremely moving and, and serious subject matter about a single mom with a um, severely disabled child sort of struggling in her day-to-day -day life and the people that she interacts with that she meets through that sort of identifying factor, um, through the hospital um, or friends or family, and how she sort of interacts with everyone, and how that that the fact of her life that she has a disabled child sort of affects every aspect of her life and how she manages it quite remarkably, I would say. I found the place so affecting. You know, I I. I, sat, I happened to sit in the front row because I probably paid for cheap seats. I I remember the lights coming down, and as soon as it, the, they they came up, and I understood what it was about, I started crying, and I I wept almost on and off, almost completely through the entire play. And it wasn't, it was, it was so brilliantly written, I felt, and that it it was completely disarming to me and it was it was it managed to be about something that we sort of know about but it was very surprising all the way throughout at the same time as it was um you know uh very affecting so it, it didn't always follow what i maybe would have expected as a playwright uh sometimes sometimes you can't help but do that when you're sitting in an audience as a playwright and go oh i know it no, oh, no, that's not where it's going. <laughs> and uh, it doesn't. And it, sometimes it doesn't matter if it, if you're right. It's still wonderful. In this case, I didn't know where it was going because I I really didn't know um, where it could go. But it it I just found it remarkable. And it it took some risks in in writing in creative ways. But it also uh, was just from what I could tell, just so authentic and true, and and rang so emotionally valid to me. And it was a while ago since I've seen it, but what I'll say is, as a playwright, when you see someone end a play perfectly, that is a feat. And so I think one of the reasons that the play stuck with me so much, even though I did cry through the whole thing and loved, loved every moment of it, found it very funny at times and obviously very affecting, but the ending is perfect. And so, and it was one of those endings that leaves you thinking and rethinking and wondering and, and unpacking the meanings but also very satisfying so uh i just that to me was it was astounding um i would say that as time has gone on it's it's elevated for me into one of those plays that has really stuck out for me for for as a, as a remarkable viewing experience I, I would love to read it again i haven't done that but uh, and I feel very connected when I get to talk to someone else who's seen it because it was it was only you know performed a few times a few different places I think Yale I'm sure it's been done elsewhere but not it didn't have a sort of Broadway run or something where like hundreds and hundreds and thousands of people saw it so um, it, but it it you know uh, my appreciation for great playwriting only grows the longer I do it and uh or try to do it i should say <laughs> try to do great playwriting and um and so it it has uh and i see many 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 plays and many wonderful plays but but when something really emotionally affects me like that and devastates me then uh it stays with me 
and um, and it sort of I sort of go back to it tonally. It, it sort of occurs to me tonally when I'm working, um, and that doesn't mean that you'd ever recognize anything in my work that is echoing it necessarily. But I know where I'm speaking, where I'm in conversation with it as a playwright. Hi, my name is Dominic Dondrea. I am the Director of Community Engagement at Queen's Theatre. I'm the New York State Representative for the Dramatist Guild of America, and I started the One Minute Play Festival, which is a community action project that we make all over the country. I wanted to take a moment to talk about Joshua Conkle's Milk Milk Lemonade, which for me was one of the most important plays that I saw in the last 10 years. When this play came out, I thought to myself, this was one of the most amazing plays written by an artist in my generation. And I was sitting in this theater blown away by what I was seeing in front of me. Play is a really critical meditation on what it's like to grow up as a queer youth in a really hostile environment. And it's told in this way that sort of harkens back to fairy tales, but also is kind of like a punk rock and generational and um, has these sort of graphic novel elements to it and really highly theatrical with the use of narrators and characters who are chickens and um, a character who has a growth on his leg that sort of takes over his entire body and all the things that they did to employ theatricality while telling a story that felt like it was so rooted in a human experience made this play a really interesting oral history in a way. Not like a literal history, but like what it felt like to grow up in this environment. And I remember thinking, I have never seen a queer story that was so highly aesthetic and also just felt like it was making a type of theater that spoke to our immediate generation in a way that was unapologetic and very honest and sort of radically inclusive. I went back and looked at the play. I noticed that one of the directions was no matter what the breakdown of the characters, uh, that the author is encouraging uh, directors and producers to think about casting inclusively, not colorblind casting or these old ideas, but this is one of the first plays that really explicitly says, uh, I think, quote, don't be a pussy, which is hilarious, but it said, put, anybody in any of these roles and be brave. Given the specificity of the experience of this play, I thought it was a really interesting choice because it allows people to um, access the story and make it more of a universal story, even though it really does have a specific point of view. There are also these elements in the plays like the, a set that sort of suggests like it's cut out and a narrator in a leotard who sort of points out the theatricality along the way really lets the audience in and the readers in that this is a theatrical experience. It still allows the space for these characters to experience these really terrifying things that are important in their development as people. I remember accessing this emotionally in a way that was really intense, but it was also riveted um, by what the play was offering. For me, this play being queer, generational, um, sort of comic book-esque, um, anachronistic to all of the things that are in culture, uh, this play should be in our national canon. Though it was performed widely when it came out, 
but I do think this is a play that can be performed and enjoyed and read and studied and debated for generations to come. It's no surprise at all to me that Joshua Conkle ended up writing for these amazing shows like Sabrina and a series of unfortunate events on Netflix that really marry this sort of dark ethos to a style, to an emotional content that's really um, deep and dark. But also, this play is funny. It is hilarious. It is theatrical. And he manages to sort of capture all these experiences in a way that keeps us breathing and moving and um, invested in um, this very fucked up kind of um, experience of this poor young kid. I love this play. And when I think about one of my favorite plays, I will always Uh, remember this play because it takes me back to a certain time and a certain place when I looked at something and said, yes, this is what the American theater needs. More of this, please. to do this episode man I love listening to people talk about things they like especially when it comes to plays you know plays are my jam but really it just it means a lot to hear people talk about something that that they find moving or inspiring or making them want to write or see theater or whatever so thank you to everybody who contributed you know a lot of people spent some time talking to me on zoom they recorded their own files and sent them in to me and a couple people called in the voicemails um thank you to all of you there's too many of you to number but each of your names uh will be appearing in the show credits thank you for listening the subtext is brought to you by american theater magazine a program of theater communications group this episode was produced and edited by me kj jarbo is the associate producer the theme song for the subtext is by international pen pal music for this episode is by Siddhartha Corsis. And usually I end each episode with talking about the play that is filling me up this month. There are 18 of them. You know, listen back to the episode and you can hear 18 different plays that are filling me up at the moment. What play is filling you up at the moment?